are Christina Cho, and this is Steam the Podcast, where I get to talk to amazing women and other underrepresented minorities in the fields of science, technology, engineering, mathematics, and the arts, or STEAM, and highlight the brilliant work they do and talk about the ways we can make STEAM truly more inclusive, equitable, and diverse. Today's episode will focus on advocacy and representation, how to take a seat at the table and advocate for yourself and for others. We'll also talk about how to be more than just an ally, but a partner and sponsor. I know it seems intimidating and maybe a bit overwhelming to advocate for someone else, especially when you're fighting and working so hard just to get a seat at the table. But remember, you're not doing this alone. There is a group of us fighting with you and working alongside you. And trust me, we are going to make sure to make enough room so that anyone who wants to join us can join us. So for this episode, I'll be talking to two incredible men who are brilliant scientists and fierce advocates for diversity, equity, and inclusion in STEAM, Drs. Krishna Madumbi and Ni Addy. Krishna Madumbi is a postdoctoral research fellow in the Department of Pharmacology in the Yale Cancer Biology Institute at Yale School of Medicine. Dr. Madumbi received his Bachelor of Arts in Political Science from Emory University, his Master of Science in Biology from St. Joseph's University, and his PhD in Biology from Temple University. His research is focused on understanding the structure, function, and signaling kinetics of epidermal growth factor receptor using state-of-the-art single molecule microscopy. He has published numerous scientific research articles and has presented his work at more than 30 different symposiums and conferences. Due to his outstanding research and academic record, Dr. Mudimbi has been awarded several grants and honors, including the Duke Next Generation Leader Award, the Capital High School Distinguished Alumni Award, and the extremely competitive and prestigious NCI Pathway to Independence Award for outstanding early-stage postdoctoral researchers. Outside of the lab, Dr. Mudumbi serves as a mentor for students of all ages. Currently, he is serving as a mentor for Skype a Scientist, a STEM enrichment program at Hanmer Elementary School, and Yale's Program to Advanced Training in Health and Sciences, or PATH. In addition, Dr. Mudumbi is heavily involved in multiple initiatives, programs, and committees at Yale to improve diversity, equity, and inclusion at the university. He is the co-chair of the Yale Postdoctoral Association, in which he spearheaded and fought for a subsidy to help postdoctoral associates pay for childcare. He is also on the executive board of the Yale Childcare Consultative Committee and is the former vice chair of the Yale Black Postdoc Association. Dr. Addy received his Bachelor of Science in Biology from Duke University and his PhD in Neuroscience from Yale University. His research examines the neurobiological mechanisms that drive addiction and substance abuse. By using in vivo electrochemistry and optogenetics and preclinical behavior analyses, Dr. Addy's research group studies reinforcement learning and motivational control and how these processes are altered in psychiatric illnesses. Dr. Addy has a prolific scientific and academic career. He has published 39 peer-reviewed articles, chapters, books, and reviews, has been awarded multiple grants from the NIH and the Federal Drug Administration, and has spoken at more than 50 different conferences and symposia. In addition to his scientific excellence, Dr. Addy is a fierce advocate for mental health and social justice. At Yale, he's involved in multiple organizations and scientific societies that develop graduate student and postdoctoral training programs to advance diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives. He also hosts the Addy Hour podcast, discussing topics at the intersection of neuroscience, mental health, 
faith, culture, and social justice. A quick plug for the Addy Hour. Episodes include dynamic conversations based on the lived experience and professional expertise of his guests, which include community leaders, clinicians, and mental health experts, scientists, professional athletes, and entertainers, faith leaders, and mental health advocates. Also, as the creator and host of Town Hall Community Events, Dr. Addy has built unique partnerships to encourage and equip audiences to embrace the use of holistic, integrated tools to address mental health challenges. His research and community work have been featured by National Public Radio, NPR, Newsday, the National Football League Players Association, The Source Magazine, Chuck Norris, Bold TV, Legitimate Matters, and Relevant Magazine. Krishna and Nee, welcome to the show. I'm so excited to have both of you on our podcast. Thanks for having me. <laughs> yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks for that great introduction as well. Yeah, I try to make it as beautiful and long as possible. <laughs> so before we get into the main topic for today, I thought you two could spend a little bit of time to share with our listeners what you guys do. So like the research you do specifically and also what you do outside of the lab. Nee, would you like to start? Sure. Well, you actually gave a great overview already. That was very impressive and thorough. So I'll just highlight a little bit to say it's been really nice to kind of integrate across all three aspects. Mm -hmm. So definitely what we do in the lab, and I say it's always about community, so our community of researchers together, what we do in the diversity, equity, inclusion, anti-racism space, and then all what we also do in the greater community. Um, so I'd say for us, you know, really what we're trying to do in the lab is understand the underlying neuroscience and neurobiology of addiction, depression, and anxiety. So twofold there. One, we're just looking for what actually happens in those mental health challenges, what's happening in the brain in our rodent models to get an understanding of the neurobiology that allows that to happen in the first place. Mm -hmm. And then we're looking for new therapeutic targets. So trying to see if we can come up with different ways to actually intervene for these mental health challenges. And we're looking a lot at comorbidity between substance use disorders and mood disorders like anxiety and depression. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of where the research is heading. But with everything else that you mentioned, we also tie in how we actually translate and communicate that to the public okay. in terms of helping people understand what's happening to your loved ones when they're navigating through these mm -hmm. things. Interestingly enough, when people hear about what, how the rats react in certain situations, people have actually emailed me to say, now I understand why my loved one is, work, is acting wow. that way, which I didn't expect, yeah. to be honest, but it just shows the power of the basic neuroscience informing mm -hmm. people's understanding and also kind of breaks through some of that stigma because people will say, okay, now I know the biology Mm. underneath what's happening with behavior. And so we're trying to do a lot in that space as well. But I'll leave it there. I know we can delve into more of the diversity, equity, inclusion sure. piece as we come back, but yeah. I'll keep it succinct for now. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's really cool stuff. Um, especially, I think, in in light of kind of the growing epidemic in opioids and mm -hmm. other drug substance abuse. I mean, I lived in Philly before I came here to mm -hmm. New Haven and, you know, um, North Philly has a pretty mm, big yeah. drug problem. And I remember seeing it all over the streets, like pay people just not really all there. And it, I remember this one woman in particular, it was a rainy day in Philly, which happens all the time randomly. And she was gone. She, um, she was a patient or um, I'm not exactly sure if they called them patients, but we had a methadone clinic down the, down the street from where our lab was and she would go to that, but apparently she had decided to fall back on her addiction, and she was she was bloody, like she had mm. she had fallen at some point. And I remember stopping her and asking her if she was okay. She was kind of like balancing, trying to stay upright. And we ended up calling nine one one. Philly has a specific force that works 
with drug addiction and um, drug problems. They're not there to arrest. They're mm. there to take them to care. Yeah. And it was just a very sad experience because this woman had been trying, yeah. you know? And so I think, you know, Philly was trying to become a safe injection site. A lot of people were very upset with that. I know we're kind of going off a little bit to- topic here, but I think it's really important that people understand that these are mental health issues. Mm-hmm. People don't choose to be addicted to drugs. People have a lot of stuff going on and they mm-hmm. do try really hard. And so it's really awesome that you're doing this kind of research. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that encouragement. I mean, it's actually moving to hear you share that story too and how, yeah. like how you reacted in that moment. And I mean, even just hearing you, even yeah. with the research, I almost have a visceral reaction of, yeah, it like was empathy and, and it was just so that like people just ignored her though. Yeah. I mean, it's Philly. You kind of had to ignore a lot of people in Philly, yeah. but I remember it was like, she was just, she was not there. And so mm-hmm. I sat with her, started pouring rain and like somebody was really nice. You know, she'd be like, do you want this umbrella? And so it was just me and this woman wow. sitting on the curb waiting for like the ambulance. And I'm like drenched <laughs> and she's like out and I'm trying to like keep her awake because yeah. I don't want her to pass out. Cause that's like the last thing you want her to do. Mm-hmm. And then all of her methadone clinic friends came and was like her support system, wow. which is really, they're like, why'd you do this? You were so good. And yeah. they were like, they wouldn't leave until the ambulance came. Mm. So I was just like, there's this, they're trying so hard. There's like, I just feel like if people understood what it is and like understood how hard they're really trying, mm-hmm. they might be less judgmental and so quick to be like, we don't think that they deserve help. They're doing yeah. it to themselves. That's not the narrative. Yeah. We need to get rid of that narrative. So anyways, well said. it's awesome that you study that. So we'll switch over to Krishna. <laughs> so Krishna, I know your research is not that research, no. <laughs> but we'll segue into your research, which is also just as cool and awesome and interesting. So why don't you tell the audience what you do for your work? <clears throat> yeah. So um, as you mentioned earlier, I'm, I'm really interested in uh, signal transduction. So I, I particularly look at epidermal growth factor receptor or EGFR. Um, and what's actually been really interesting about what we were studying with this is that for the longest time now, ever since uh, you know EGFR was discovered and discovered to be an important uh, protein for cancer signaling, um, is that people have typically treated it as kind of like an on-off switch, right? Uh, when the receptor's on, it signals. When it's off, it doesn't signal. Um, but we've recently discovered, or the field has started to grow in this way, that these are probably a little bit more nuanced, right? They're, mm-hmm. They kind of uh, have a biased agonism. They're able to be uh, turned on by different signals and they give you different signaling outcomes, mm-hmm. but we're really unsure how this works. Right. And if we treat this protein as just an on off switch, it doesn't really give us the full explanation for how it can respond differently to different things, turning it on. So we've started to delve into the kinetics of how these receptors work. So basically the timing of how long they stay on or how, you know, how much, uh, how much signal does it take to get them to turn on and how long do they, uh, do they stay active? So, to do that, as you mentioned, I use um, uh, super resolution or high resolution microscopy techniques. Super too. cool stuff. Yeah, it's fun actually. I've uh, seen the images. Yeah, they're pretty. So that's one <laughs> thing I do get to get for my research is I get I get to make pretty images, um, which is always fun. Um, I've always liked taking pretty images of cells. But the but the byproduct. That was like the yeah. nerdiest thing. <laughs> I love images of cells. They're yeah. really cool. Mm-hmm. I mean. You know, and it's funny because I think back on sometimes I used to think back on like my old high school or college textbooks and I saw all these pretty pictures of cells, you know, like they're all so many different colors and you never really think about how that ever happens. Yeah. Like, you know, whatever you get like one lecture about it or whatever, but then to just realize that there's so many of these really cool different colored probes and then the, the difficulty it is to get a perfect picture, mm-hmm. like a publication worthy picture for a textbook. 
it's crazy. Now yeah. I appreciate it more, yeah. which makes me love it more. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so that's one thing I do get to show off is pretty high resolution pictures yeah. of, of those things. But, yeah. But, uh, but back to the topic. Uh, yeah, so <laughs> basically, no, no, it's all good. And so, uh, so yeah, so I get to use these fancy uh, microscopy techniques to, to study the, uh, the time dimension, right? How, how these things are actually signaling in terms of their temporal signaling, uh, mm-hmm. the, the time, timing of the whole, whole process. Um, and that's been a lot of fun. And that's where I see my research going also in the future is I'm really interested in not just looking at epidermal growth factor receptor, but it's part of a larger group of proteins that I'd like to study as well. All of which kind of show this uh, time-based signaling uh, kind of process. So, Very yeah, cool. Really interesting. So, okay. So I want that, the question I like to start a lot of our podcast with is how and who and what inspired you guys to kind of choose the path. So, Krishna, I remember you telling me that you were in law school at one point mm-hmm. and then uh, somehow you decided to become a scientist. So <laughs> like how how your path wasn't quite a straight line. So what inspired you or like who inspired you to become a cancer biologist? Yeah, I mean, in a sense, I think that was me trying to rebel from a rebel from my parents to a degree because my dad's a scientist. Um, <laughs> and, you know, it, we had a lot of science in the house, but I also love politics like mm-hmm. Um, I loved history. I loved poli sci when I was in college and in high school. And I kind of wanted to take, the, you know, go off the beaten path and just try something different. Like, no, dad. Uh, no, <laughs> not science. But, but he never he never really <laughs> you know, expected me to really go into science. But I think it was just one of those things where I was like, no, I'm going to be my own my own thing. I'm going to mm-hmm. be different. Um, and maybe I did have some delusions of grandeur of like, I don't know, politics in the future someday. Who knows? You can but, still do it. Uh, maybe, uh, not, we not, don't. <laughs> we need more scientists, I think, in Congress. Yeah, but yeah, continue. Not, not to say that, that yeah, that, that's <laughs> you know a path that I can't take anymore. But um, yeah, so I, I really, I, I really enjoyed. I think what I realized is really I'm an academic at heart. I loved learning about history and poli sci, but I think when it came time to practicing any of this stuff, it wasn't for me. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, and the environment wasn't really as the camaraderie wasn't there like like I thought it should be. Um, mm-hmm. But I felt that in science and I'd always been interested in science. So I'd done a little bit of research as a, as a college student. Um, so that's kind of what drew me back. Um, and really, actually, it was at St. Joseph's when I met my PI uh, at the time, Edwin Lee. He probably got me into cancer biology and biophysics. Mm-hmm. Um, he was just amazing. I mean, the way he talked about uh, protein interactions and just the passion that he had for this kind of stuff was really, I think, really what drew me in. Because I think other than that, I was thinking of maybe genetics, but. Mm-hmm. After I met him, I was like, "No, I can't be anything else." Wow. <laughs> you had a protein interactions. Yeah, so he was he was the one that that got me into protein interactions for sure. But I'm glad I I'm glad I did take a more convoluted path because it at least showed me what I didn't want to do. Mm. Um, so I think that's important to learn about ourselves too, right? And I'm yeah. and I'm a big fan of um, kind of being well rounded in some sense, right? Mm-hmm. I, I think there's a benefit to that. Absolutely, yeah. So I just came back from a conference and. Um, Friday night they had what they called the checkpoints party. So if anyone's familiar about immunotherapy or cancer immunotherapy, checkpoint therapy is like the last maybe eight years. It really got hot and it's basically using your immune system to fight cancer. Mm. And there are a couple of leaders in the field, you know, some of, some of whom won the Nobel prize, like Jim Allison, Now Jim Allison and Rachel Humphreys. There's a whole bunch of people, big name people. They're in a band together called the checkpoints. Now, they're really good. I mean, Jim Allison's on the harmonica and like Rachel singing and her voice is incredible. I mean, these people are like the leaders in their field. They're like, I mean, this is like nerd Lollapalooza, like Lollapalooza, but nerd Lollapalooza, right? It's like, and they're killing it. 
They're killing it. There's like, and I, what I learned from this experience was that, you know, you can be really good at what you do and also have other interests mm-hmm. and hobbies and be a jack of all trades and be kind of a little eclectic and well-rounded and still be really good at your craft. So yeah, figure out what you like to do. Maybe go into politics for a little bit later. Who knows? <laughs> but, but I think in, in, in terms of like the title, right, of this podcast, Steamed, yeah. there's a lot of scientists that are good artists, like yeah. musicians or just art, art. Like, yeah. Yeah, it's yeah, absolutely. It's definitely that. Anyways, so how about you, Neve? So what inspired you or who inspired you to become a neuroscientist? Well, Krishna, we actually have some parallels there, too, because so my dad is a psychiatrist. Okay. Both my parents grew up in Ghana, West Africa, so okay. they met in medical school there. But I didn't go as far, but I actually was told my dad growing up I didn't want to do anything related to what he did. <laughs> as you read, you, you didn't mention that I'm in the psychiatry department. So yeah. I didn't get that far away, although that was my intention. So I think some of that influence was there, too. Um, but I also I, would, I feel like I always had this interest in neuroscience and the brain mm-hmm. and psychology. Funny thing is I had a psychology professor in college. Okay. Yeah, I was taking abnormal psych. I was trying to decide, do I want to do psychology? Do I want to do biology? And he told me to be a biology major, hmm. which I actually found offensive. Because <laughs> I was like, am I not cut out for this? No. <laughs> Apparently not. But in honestly, I think he saw my interest in the biological side mm. of things. And so he was mentoring yes. already in that way and steering me towards that direction. Yes. Um, just another side thing to throw in about him. He was a really impressive professor because, I mean, there were a hundred people in the class. Yeah. He asked each of us, in the, in the class to take him out to lunch. I mean, wow. he still bought it, but he, that was his way of investing mm. in each person. So, he, you know, he had a check-in. Yeah. So I think the fact that he did that and we had that level that he invested in the students and had yes. that level of understanding to be able to say, no, I see your interest mm-hmm. in this era rather than just lecturing yeah. and not really knowing where people are. So that was a huge piece for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and also just having research experience in different labs mm-hmm. as an undergrad, I think was also a great just eye-opening experience for me to kind of get my hands wet and mm-hmm. things and learn how much I didn't know about research, which really motivated me to get into grad school. Mm-hmm. But I'd say for me, a lot of it has just been mentors and sponsors along the way, mm-hmm. whether it's about the research questions that we're looking at, whether it's about mentoring. I was mm-hmm. able to do some programs where I had really clear passion from those who were running the programs and I could really see their passion for mentoring, which kind of instilled that in me. Mm-hmm. Um, and even some of the things I do now, you know, I said, I tried not to be like my dad. I didn't succeed. <laughs> I was trying to decide between MD, MD, PhD, PhD. I went the PhD route, but then later in life, later in life, I'm not 70, but <laughs> <laughs> later in my <laughs> career development, I actually during sabbatical spent some time with some clinical psychology interns. Yes. Okay. Um, and so that kind of facilitates some of the podcasting. Mm-hmm. So even though, you know, there were these different interests in different areas. There's the basic science piece. I was starting to bring in the clinical piece, even as a non-clinician, integrating all that on the podcast. So I just feel like there have been a lot of different opportunities that I've been able to take advantage of in, in a sense. Um, and just having some key people like my dad and others along the way that have kind of shown me what's possible mm-hmm. and mentors who really invested. And I know we'll come back to this later, yeah. but there were a lot of sponsors and allies and advocates along the way that facilitated yeah. that process as well. That's, that's So this is kind of a, topic that comes up every single time I ask this question about like how or who or what inspired you mm-hmm. and there's always it's always people it's mm-hmm. never just like an event but it's really people in your life whether it's family or a mentor or a peer um, and it, I think this is something that you know steamed is really trying to emphasize is that who you know is really important and I know it's very hard for people who feel like they don't belong or aren't represented to yeah. find that network and this is why we wanted to create this project yeah. and why we created this uh, podcast. So you can hear from people 
who might be like you and yeah. who might you might relate to and and these are people available to build your network so you know don't hesitate to get on our directory and start emailing people everyone yeah so i think that's huge yeah and just to riff off that a little bit so that program i was referencing yes it was a spines program at woods hole um so it was headed by joe martinez and jim townsell of african-american and hispanic neuroscientists mm -hmm. who basically facilitated that program so i mean in that sense they were serving as examples mm -hmm. they were serving as advocates they were nice. serving as mentors all those pieces were all there yeah and that's something that really stuck with me and i've tried to continue to pay forward that's awesome i love hearing about this stuff because especially programs can you mention the program one more time yep spines, spines. so it's now called a summer program in neuroscience ethics and it used to be called survival i can't remember what they actually changed to, but it's up at a uh, marine biological laboratory okay. in Woods Hole every summer. Yeah, so, so look into that, check people. It out. Yes, we like to plug in programs. <laughs> okay, <laughs> that's good. Yeah, we talked about a lot of bridge programs mm. with Eileen and and Favor, and so you know there are programs out there. Sometimes it's really hard to find them because you just don't know. Mm -hmm. So hear about it, look it up, and we'll also have it on the website. So let's talk a little bit about representation. Um, studies have found that students typically learn best when they feel included when they feel like they belong and a culture of belonging at an institution or workplace generally improves retention and the success of underrepresented minorities. But as I've mentioned in earlier podcasts, STEAM is not a very representative or diverse um, place. And so in general, black indigenous and people of color are still a minority of STEAM students and workers they make up approximately seven to nine percent of STEAM workforce and graduates, which is a really small number. Mm -hmm. Women are doing better. You know, we're about 34 percent of the STEAM workforce, a little over a third. But women of color only make up like 10 percent. And so, um, you know, I wanted to ask and I bring this up in other episodes, too. But have either of you ever felt a sense of exclusion or a lack of belonging? Yeah, I can start. I mean. In STEM, I'll, I'll be honest, I'll be lucky. I have been lucky enough not to t feel too much like I'm excluded per se. Um, but I think in terms of what's <clears throat> shaped me to kind of take lead in the projects that I've done or the, in the groups that I've been a part of is that I, I grew up in Boise, Idaho, of all places, as an Indian American, right? Which is uh, strange. Um, <laughs> not many, not very, not very many Indians in, uh, in, uh, Boise, in Boise. Idaho. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, so I did of course grow up, uh, in a sense feeling different. I mean, not that pe people were actually quite lovely. I can't say that they weren't, you know, I had some really great friends there, but I, I was clearly different. Right. I mean, I, like I could physically feel like I was not the same as everyone else. Um, and so I think, I think that made a big impression on me in terms of what carried over with me. Right. So anytime I feel like someone else is feeling that way, my first instinct is to make them not feel that way, mm -hmm. to make them feel like they're part of the community. Um, so I think that's kind of what, what has driven me to do that. But but I have to admit, I'm, I'm lucky enough not to feel terribly excluded in mm -hmm. STEM, I have to say. Mm -hmm. How about you, Nick? Yeah, I would say it's definitely come here, here and there over time. It's mm -hmm. always kind of a mixture when it does come up of lack of belonging slash imposter syndrome. Mm -hmm. Kind uh, yes. of going together and almost riffing off each other in a, mm -hmm. in a weird kind of way. Um, but there have also been instances where there's been a lot of support too. So I'd say, you know, I did my grad school work here at Yale. Our class was very unique okay. uh, coming in. I'm going to date myself because I'm going to say when we started. This was in 2002. Uh. <laughs> you <laughs> sure no, but, you're not 70? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Good call. Now, I, I don't even know how to respond to that. That was, that was good. I'm impressed. Um, but our class was unique. There were seven of us, three African-Americans. Mm -hmm. One Chinese American, mm -hmm. one Pakistani American, um, 
I'm forgetting someone. Oh, one student who had immigrated from Russia. Okay. And one um, American who was a member of LG, LGBTQ. Oh, so it was so like that's, diverse. All, all the people. Yeah, for 2002, that was very unique. Mm. Yeah. So I mentioned that in the sense that it was helpful because we kind of all had each other to feed off mm-hmm. of. Even as we were kind of navigating through the imposter syndrome, like, do we belong here? Do we not? Yeah. At least we could relate to each other and kind of talk that mm-hmm. through. I know that's not always the case. And that was a very unique situation, which mm-hmm. I think I was very fortunate to be in. Mm-hmm. But that was also helpful just to kind of get plugged into other groups too. So, you know, as we're recording, the Society for Neuroscience Conference is going on. And mm-hmm. I had a lot of opportunities to plug in with different groups, affinity groups within that organization, mm-hmm. the Spines program that I mentioned. So, yeah, the feeling has definitely been there. But I've also tried to get support, not only just from my own program or institution. I mean, I was fortunate to have that in my program, but that's not common. Mm-hmm. So oftentimes I feel like for me, it's been good to also just plug into networks outside of my circle, yeah. whether that's outside of my department, different department, outside my institution, and just find lots of different pockets. Mm-hmm. Um, and something you alluded to earlier about having different aspects of who we are, mm-hmm. even though I didn't always feel like I belonged at times, I was able to get that in other places outside of academia mm-hmm. too. So especially when I was here as a grad student, I was very big on not getting stuck in the Yale bubble. Mm. Um, not that that's a negative thing per se, but that's not representative representative of the world. Yeah. So it's like I need to still be plugged in to the world outside of Yale. Um, so my wife and I actually went to a church in New Haven mm-hmm. where you had people who were like a wide range of socioeconomic status, people that were in that community people that were living in the projects all the way up to physicians at Yale. Mm-hmm. So for me, it was really helpful to kind of get outside the Yale bubble and to have support in that network in a place where I felt like I belonged. And mm-hmm. almost in a sense, I could use that to come back mm-hmm. to Yale. Not that I had left, but in a sense to kind of navigate in different worlds and use that as a support structure too. Yeah. So, I mean, the reason I asked this question is I know that I've been toward several students now who you know, we're in 2022 Mm -hmm. and they still feel like they're like the only person Mm -hmm. in the program, the only person in their classroom that are either, you know, that look like them or have their lived experience. And um, sometimes I try to think back to the first time I realized, oh, I'm kind of different. And it wasn't because I'm Asian, right? Because Asian Americans are pretty much everywhere, (laughs) Um, especially in STEAM, Mm -hmm. especially at the trainee level. Mm -hmm. There's, you know, we're, Mm -hmm. we're a lot like at students and postdocs. A little bit sparser when you get higher up the ladders and harder to find Asian American CEOs, harder to find Asian American faculty. But what I felt um, in the sense of exclusion or not really belonging was the fact that I'm first generation low income. Mm -hmm. That's really hard to find in academia. And there's this one conversation that I will never, ever, ever forget. So when I was in grad school, I tried to save as much of my stipend as possible so I can go home once a year. So home was in Southern California, grad school is in upstate New York. So flight just it's expensive. And mm-hmm. my stipend at the time was like barely $1,500 a month. You know, you pay rent, you eat, you're like, you have no money. So um, there's this one time I wanted to go home and I was, you know, thinking, okay, the best way to spend my money is to put all my vacation time together, go for two weeks. Mm -hmm. And so I was trying to plan my vacation around my committee meeting. And my committee was just like not happy. They were really annoyed. They were like, how could you be planning your vacation? You should be focused. Like we should not be catering to your vacation time, essentially. I mean, that that was like, the language was softer, Mm -hmm. but it was very much like, you're not being serious. Yeah, You're not being focused. How could you be planning a vacation? So 
there was a little bit of a heated conversation and then I'm like, all right, well, here, this is the thing. I just want to go home. So let's <laughs> let's plan this. And one of my committee members was just like, why don't you just go for a weekend? Why does it have to be a two, like mm-hmm. two full weeks? I was just like, well, it costs a lot of money and it makes the most sense for the money that I'll be spending. And he goes, why don't you just ask your parents to pay for your flight or like send you a ticket? And I said, well, they can't afford it. And he said, no, they're just being cheap. Wow. Yeah. And I remember standing there like really humiliated, (laughs) feeling very small. But also I felt like kind of embarrassed for my parents. Like, oh my God, now they think my parents are cheap. Like they really like my mom's a single mom. Like she didn't have that kind of money. I mean, I'm sure she could if she really like wanted to not, you know, live her life, you know? (laughs) So I remember that. And I was just like, what the hell? And that like, I never forgot that. And there are several other conversations similar to that where I was just like, wow, there are people are way more privileged than I am. Mm -hmm. And I don't think they've ever had to worry about money the way I did Mm -hmm. like my entire education. And so when I go to DI meetings, the voice I want to represent is not necessarily an Asian American, but someone who's first generation Mm -hmm. income who might be, you know, sending money back home and people don't know that or who their entire lives have worried about money and so they can't really be 100% at work because they're thinking about their finances. And so what something I wanted to ask about you guys is that during, you know, your schooling or training or your, you know, climbing up the academic ladder, was there a time when you recognized that you might be like a, a member of a, like a, an underrepresented group or historically marginalized group? And if so, you know, did you ever feel like you had to be like a role model or like the representative. Cause I know like some of my mentees have mentioned something like that. Yeah. Like I'm the only, so I, I have to like be really good or like really stand up for people. Like, yeah. have you ever felt something like that throughout your careers? Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I mean, I have to pick like which ones or ones to kind of highlight. Oh yeah. Talk about so, all of them. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I guess I'll do a, a couple that are more recent, maybe just to give people a sense of just trajectory too. So I think this was a conference in 2014. Okay. Um, so it's a really kind of niche is in the right word, but a specialized conference, which mm-hmm. we do very well in science. So this is a nicotinic acetylcholine receptor conference mm-hmm. um, in the UK. And I was fortunate to be selected as one of the speakers mm-hmm. for that conference. So I don't, yeah, I'm pretty sure I was the only black speaker. So I spoke on the last day and I just felt like there was so much weight on that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I practiced that talk over and over and over and over again. So I was basically, you know, correctly or incorrectly thinking that people are going to see people like me through that lens and mm-hmm. what their perception was going to be. Um, so, I mean, the talk went well and there were a lot of compliments, but that was also mixed too. Cause it's almost like people were surprised. Ugh. Like, wow, that, yeah. that was such a great You're talk. So good. Yeah. That's so yeah. surprising. And then, you know, the word that we, people have a lot of mixed feelings about articulate. Oh, you are so articulate. Like all that. Yeah. Was that? <laughs> so, I mean, that's just one example, but I also t- like it goes both ways. Cause I also, when I went to that conference, there were other trainees who were at that conference, other black trainees. I remember, mm-hmm. you know, coming out to people, introducing myself, one trainee in particular who I still keep in touch with. The minute I introduced myself to him at his post, he's like, I know who you are. I'm like, <laughs> oh, oh, really? <laughs> like, you're <laughs> that one threw of me us. A lot. So, I mean, that also <laughs> yeah. just showed me. So, that tells me the weight wasn't imagined in the mm-hmm. sense that people were watching and that was important mm-hmm. but i mean so that's just one example but it still comes up in other ways too i mean i gave a talk at another specialized conference this past summer 
obviously I already have an adult chair, you know, all the accolades, but mm-hmm. I still felt that weight. Because again, at this conference, I was the only black speaker. Mm. So again, that still comes. And whether people think about it or not who are watching, I know that that does carry a lot of weight in how people think about and mm-hmm. perceive things. So, I mean, there's an opportunity there too, because I think it does give opportunity for people to see how we operate. Um, but also being at this stage in my career, I think there's some ownership of that too, in mm-hmm. the sense that, yes, I have to be good at my craft, but I also take liberty to kind of focus on things that I feel like are important. Okay. Mm-hmm. So in those talks, I often just start out just talking about community. Yeah. So the community that I mentioned about the community in the lab, some of the community work that we do, integrating all these different things. To my surprise, in that talk, and this has never happened to me in a science talk, mm-hmm. I was two slides in and people started clapping wow. when I talked about the community work. That's amazing. So to me, that was very gratifying. It's kind of a full circle. There is this extra weight, but it seems like there is also at least a greater acknowledgement mm-hmm. of a lot of the work that a lot of us are doing outside the science that also has mm-hmm. importance. Yeah. So, so I mentioned all that. And you can tell even in my voice, and it was emotion with that too, because there's, yeah. there's a lot that comes with that. But I think it's, it can be powerful, but challenging. Yeah. I mean, I have, I, I, I think I really want our younger listeners um, to hear this is that there, there will always be times when you feel maybe like you're the only, or like, you know, like, am I doing this right? Mm-hmm. Or like, do I have to carry this? Right. And that's a huge weight. It's a huge weight. And I, I like to tell my mentees that, it's not all yours. Like you shouldn't carry all that weight by yourself. Yeah. And yes, you know, um, unfortunately, if you are the only people do look at you and people do put pressure on you, but that's their problem, mm. not yours. Yeah. Uh, that's good. <laughs> and um, I really hope that our younger listeners, if you ever feel that kind of pressure, just know it's really not just your weight to carry. Mm-hmm. Like you can be yourself, you can be free and really like, I, I, even throughout this episode, I want to emphasize that advocacy starts with you, mm. right? You got to advocate for yourself. You got to protect yourself because you need to, in order for you to do the bigger work later, you have to be equipped and sane and healthy. Yeah. So, you know, don't feel like you have to carry all the weight on your mm. own. So I want to really emphasize yeah. that even though it's there, the responsibilities will be there. They exist, but don't let that be like this overwhelming yeah. cloud over you. How about you, Krishna? But but I will add a point that it's still tough. I yeah. mean, like, mm. even now, I, I still find it quite difficult. Even, like, my personal life, like, not just in science, but I often feel like I'm representing every Indian ever. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and it's tough because, you know, like, there's these expectations, you know, whether it's in science or outside, yeah. that, you that, oh, you're going to behave a certain way because mm. whatever. But And you don't want to prove that true, you know, mm-hmm. so you try very hard. But actually, the, the another pet peeve of mine, which you actually really alluded to, is this whole well-spoken thing. Mm. It's like <laughs> one of one of my experiences with this was well, I remember my first day of grad school, oh, I got God. an email that <laughs> that said, "Oh, how come you're not signed up for English as a second language?" And I was like, "Well, why would I be? <laughs> I mean, I've literally grown up here." And it was just frustrating because that was the assumption, right? Yeah. Is that yeah. I would need to. And so it was just, you know, so next thing I did was make a call because I was like, I'm not going to write an email. I'm just going to call these people, let them hear, <laughs> let them <laughs> let them figure it out. And then, you know, so like I called and the lady's like, oh, doesn't sound like you need it. And I was like, I, I think you're right. <laughs> but but actually, you know, but in another instance that I had some similar to that is um, I remember I was at a conference a while back now and I had gotten an email from the session chair that I was giving a talk at asking if I would be able to present my work 
like articulately if I could, if I could, and I was like, it was just so offensive. I didn't know what to say to that. I was like, yes, like, because you also don't want to turn down the opportunity because you've worked hard for it. Right. But like, you know, so you, sometimes you just have to deal with these Mm -hmm. things and it's, it's difficult. It, It takes a toll, but I think, um, you know, like you were saying, like, I think you started off saying, Christina, is that there's a lot of people here that are, that have gone through a lot of those things. So people are definitely yeah. not alone in these experiences. Yeah. yeah. There's a lot of people that have had to deal with them. Yeah. Oh, I think that's yeah. so important so to highlight. And like you were saying, too, there is like people shouldn't have to feel like they have to step into that role yes. every single time. Yeah. Yes. Like if you get called out, you don't have to speak on behalf mm-hmm. of your group, race, identity. No. So it should definitely be. Yes. That flexibility. I mean, the pressure is there unfortunately people still have their biases mm. and mm-hmm. yeah. we do have an in- institution that is steam that has historically been one population and people have sometimes a lack of understanding mm-hmm. or just even exposure. And yeah. so it happens, but again, you know, when you can and you want to step in, do you, and when you're like, no, I'm done, you can say, no, I'm done. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. So, you know, this is something I, w- I wanted to ask Nia about because, you know, you're like up there. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, we talk about lack of representation in general, but in faculty at institutions of higher learning, it's like quite appalling. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I looked the statistic up on the National Center for Education Statistics for full time faculty um, in the fall of 2020. Okay. 39% were white males, 35% were white females. The next largest racial or ethnic group was Asian or Pacific Islander with 7% AAPI males and 5% AAPI females. That's it. I think that's a big drop. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then um, then there's only 4% full-time faculty who are black females. And for black males, it's only 3%. A similar statistic for Hispanic faculty, it's about 3%. And then when you get to indigenous peoples, it's less than 1% mm-hmm. of full-time faculty. So when you hear these numbers these really crappy low numbers, how do you feel? And like, what do you think are the reasons behind the lack of diversity and representation and faculty? Yeah, that's a good question. So, I mean, I feel it feels disappointing. Mm-hmm. And now I, I have mixed feelings too, because I have an official role within mm-hmm. the administration. So there's like a, an inherent, I mean, granted I'm in a year into that role, but there's an inherent like <laughs> responsibility mm-hmm. that I feel too amidst all of that. Um, I mean, but my mind goes all sorts of places. So one place my mind goes is as you're talking about faculty, I'm also thinking about those numbers are actually better than they appear in some ways. If you think about leaders Mm -hmm. too, because that numbers drop. If you talk about leaders, I mean, Mm -hmm. you're talking about Asian American Pacific Islander groups that dwindles. If you think about who's in charge in certain situations Mm -hmm. and all the other categories as well, Mm -hmm. that's one place my mind goes. The other place my mind goes is all the stories I've heard from students over the years. Some of who have worked, who have worked for me who first get to certain places and say, I don't see anybody that looks like me Yep. and I don't know if I can survive here Yeah. Mm -hmm. and survive in the sense, like make it be appreciated, Mm -hmm. all those types of things. So that the, the kind of my visceral reaction is just disappointment. But then I also, want to have more of a proactive role in that as well. Mm -hmm. And so I think a lot of it has to do with not only just representation. I've said this in other forums too. Sometimes we focus so much on the recruitment Mm -hmm. that we don't actually focus enough on the retention Mm -hmm. side of things and the leadership opportunities. Mm -hmm. So who's actually at the table when we consider people for certain leadership roles Mm -hmm. and have people had equal access to that in the first place. Mm -hmm. And then not even just equal access, but equal access to training opportunities. Mm -hmm. So if a certain sub 
set of people don't have the same leadership growth opportunities. And then we say, oh, here's the leadership position. Why don't you step into it? And then they fail at it. Yeah. Institutionally, it's very easy to put that fault on the person mm -hmm. rather than to say, oh, well, maybe the structure didn't right. actually set them up for success. Yeah. So, I mean, there are so many things we have to think about. I know this is a little bit no, beyond no. our question of faculty, but yeah, I think yeah. just the leadership and because that is also going to have trickle down effects on the faculty. If mm -hmm. there are more diverse leaders, it's probably going to have effects on how we actually recruit and retain our faculty, which will impact how we recruit and retain trainees. So it kind of yeah. goes all the way up and down. Just, but just where my mind is this day, yeah. these days is a lot around that leadership. Yeah, I think I've spoken component. to a couple of my friends, especially those who are looking for jobs in the academia and who mm -hmm. are planning to stay. But they feel like, his, you know, in their own experience, they either weren't treated very well by mm -hmm. academia or they don't mm -hmm. really see themselves in leadership positions. Mm -hmm. And they are afraid of going to institutions where there isn't a support system. Yeah. So you get hired, you check off a list for mm -hmm. the institution, you're the nice DEI pick, mm -hmm. but then there's nothing there to mm -hmm. make sure that you're successful yeah. or that, you know, they help you really fall into that role well. And yeah. so, yeah, I think that's a really good point. I think... I, I know that I've spoken to a lot of students who feel like there aren't faculty that look like them. Mm -hmm. And then they're like, well, how am I supposed to relate to anybody and ask them for mentorship and have them understand me? And then, you know, then I have people who are transitioning who are mm -hmm. from trainee to faculty and they're like, well, you know, I want to do it, but then it's like, I have to be it by myself. And that's like a lot. You yeah. know, I also want to focus on my research. I also want to focus on this. But then if I'm in every DEI role and mm -hmm. every, I'm a mentor for every student of color, like when do I have time to be successful? Yeah. So I think that's, that's really important. I think there has to be more of like a support network for, you know, faculty from historically marginalized communities yeah. so that once they're there, they can really play into that role well. And they're not split into all of these like yeah. tangential roles so that then they're not as successful in like other places. Yeah. yeah. I think a lot of it has to be structural too. Because mm -hmm. I mean, even as I talked about some of those challenging experiences at the conferences, there were a fair number of people who were really supportive in those situations, but it didn't change kind of the macro level mm -hmm. challenge. And even, you know, across the faculty level or leadership, there are a lot of key people in key places who are fighting for this, mm -hmm. but we're all kind of operating within the same system. Mm -hmm. And so it's often difficult for a subset of people to shift and change the whole system yeah, to really make an impact. So, I mean, I want to kind of balance those two as well. Like I wouldn't want people to hear this and say, wow, that sounds pretty hopeless. No. Because <laughs> it can. Yeah. So yeah. it's a kind of a tension of mm -hmm. both happening. There are key people in key places, yes. but they're also still operating in the challenging system. And it really, yeah. some things just have to be deconstructed. I know yeah. that's a bigger conversation yes. than maybe this podcast. No, I absolutely. No, that's true. That, on, there's a lot of, there's a lot of people working really hard to mm -hmm. try to bring about change. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, as we talked about earlier, I'm going to plug in my friend Mirage here. Mm -hmm. um, he works on yeah. institutionalized racism. Yeah. And yeah. The, the problem with institutions and systems is that, you know, they're kind of an entity of itself and yeah. it's really hard to fix that. And yeah. so there has to be a pretty rude awakening, a change yeah. that has to happen that's kind of big and dramatic and yeah. hard and scary. And there will be pushback. So it'll take time. So there's hope. <laughs> But let's be a little bit realistic. Unfortunately, it won't be tomorrow. Maybe, hopefully, Gen Z, who our faith is in you. <laughs> um, there's also like this issue of not getting credit for like the like shadow mentorship, for instance, mm -hmm. that you're doing. Right? I mean, there are definitely people that are doing a lot of this work, but then it, in a sense, it almost feels like it doesn't count towards yeah. anything. And I don't mean that in a negative way, but like 
you know, towards if we're talking about academia, then yeah. like towards yeah. your tenure package, right? For instance, right? Uh, you might be mentoring all these different people that might not be on paper or might not be on paper in the way that we traditionally think of it, like mm-hmm. a PhD student with a PI or whatever. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there's someone else in another lab that comes to you because you're someone that looks like them or someone who's experienced similar things as them. Mm-hmm. But that often gets unnoticed, right? And I think yeah. That, yeah. that needs to change too. Yeah, I definitely agree with you. And for, I would say, fortunately, I have seen shifts to that. So even mm-hmm. at Yale, the School of Medicine, that has started to be incorporated in the DEI supplement. And some of that work was done. Some of that initiation was done within our psychiatry department. Mm-hmm. So we have, uh, I'm forgetting the names of all the different <laughs> committees, but a diversity and inclusion committee mm-hmm. that actually did a bit of homework and looked at other institutions that were integrating their DEI components into that promotion process. Mm-hmm. So it's a start. It's not where it should be per se, but there have been pushes for yeah. that exact, which I think is really important yeah, that's great to hear. because then otherwise, like you said, it just stays invisible. It's not taken into account. Yeah. And then people will just say, well, why haven't you, why haven't you been as productive as X, right. Y, and Z? Well, because I've been doing 10 other mm-hmm. mentoring mm-hmm. types of things. So yeah, that's a really good point. Now, actually, that's that's really good. So that, that was one of the questions I was going to ask later, but this is the perfect time. So then I want to ask, since both of you guys do a ton of DEI work, like, do you think it cuts into your like work work? And I know, um, you know, there's like this idea of a minority tax that people mm-hmm. talk about. So like, you know, women of color, or people of color or, or other minorities, they do a lot of work, a lot of resources and time spent on DEI initiatives and programs and mentoring. Um, and it kind of cuts into their time doing their like academic work. And, you know, do you think that the amount of time, do you ever worry that the amount of time and energy and resources you're spending doing DI work cuts into your academic productivity? And are there projects or initiatives that you have said no to? And like, when is it okay to say no? Yeah. I mean, I definitely feel that it does cut into my time, but <clears throat> I also enjoy doing it. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a time I like spending anyway. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I wouldn't feel as fulfilled, I think, if I was doing research but not doing something outside of that that I felt was also important to give back to the community. Um, so it's, yeah, it's it's a burden, but it's a it's a burden I think I take on willingly because it's it's useful, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we want to try and improve things for the people that come after us. Um, so I think it's it's worth spending the time on, and it and there's definitely times I've said no. I always feel guilty, um, <laughs> but it's hard, you know, it's hard not to feel guilty because yeah. you know that if you don't do it, maybe no one else will do it. But, you know, I think, I think as we've kind of all alluded to the, the community in, a, in general, people that are doing this kind of DEI work is growing. And I feel actually quite happy and confident in seeing the people that have stepped into place now. I Like, for instance, I had to step down from um, doing stuff with the Yale Black Postdoctoral Association and it was at a time where I know they needed people to step up a little bit and it was difficult for me to step back. Um, but it was something I had to do for myself as well, but there was already a nice community that was starting to grow to fill in the mm. spot. So I think you sometimes just have to have faith that someone will step in. Usually someone will. Um, but I think if you can and when you can, you should give yourself the space to do the work that you want to do as well. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, you need to be that person to step in for the other person that stepped away. Mm-hmm. I think so. You have to just kind of work that balance. It's tough, though. Yeah. It's not easy. Yeah. yeah, that's really well said. I mean, that's encouraging to hear, too. I mean, so I would say I don't worry about it <laughs> okay. because in the sense I don't worry if it's happening because I, I know it is happening. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. it's just it's just fact Yeah. at this point. At the same time, I know I'm also the place of privilege because I'm a little bit further in my academic career where mm-hmm. I don't have to be as dependent 
this will sound horrible, but I don't have to be this dependent on my science. If yeah. that makes sense. <laughs> Whereas you already have one, your, your reputation. You're exactly. like Dr. Niadi. <laughs> like day one, yeah. I was very like, is my science enough? Is mm-hmm. this going to like, am I going to survive here? Like all that was, that was consuming. Yeah. Now there's more freedom to not be as consumed mm-hmm. by that and to do, not that that work wasn't important, but to do the other things that are also important, mm-hmm. but it definitely takes away from the work as well too. It's yeah. funny because I, again, visceral seems to be my word for today. Mm-hmm. But as you're reading through my CV, like I could still feel that yeah. even in me. So I'm like, oh, well, the number of papers probably would be more if I didn't have all the <laughs> DEI stuff and all the podcast, you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But so I know that I've spread myself across different mm-hmm. things with a lot of teams in place. Yeah. But it also wouldn't feel like something would feel off if any one of those yeah. weren't there. So it's just, it's kind of a combination of things. And again, I keep going back to that spines program. One of the mm-hmm. things that they told us early on was don't join every committee when mm. you get there because you won't be around anymore. Because mm. you'll do all those committees and then people will be like, you haven't been productive. Mm-hmm. And then, so you got to play a long game. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, definitely it comes into play. But again, it's just like, like you said, Krishna, it's the work that has to be done. Mm-hmm. And again, I know now this is turning into pessimism to like a Yale school mess and plug, but <laughs> <laughs> there have been things that have been moving in the right direction. So it's called the FDAC. It's a new faculty development um, questionnaire that Keith Joe's office had uh, put together. Nice. Where we were actually asked questions about how many students do you mentor? How many faculty do you mentor? And then you actually have a meeting with your supervisor about mm-hmm. that. So I say that because I think that's really helpful because then there's, yeah. it's actually on the page. Yeah. And this is also going to sound like a flex, but when I was doing that, I was like, I can't actually count how many it's there too are. Many. It's too much. But I think that was important for yeah. me to recognize. Yeah. And when I had my meeting with my supervisor to yeah. recognize, say, oh, well, look, I am spending this time. Yeah. Not that I needed to validate it, but it's just helpful to have that conversation yeah, out absolutely. in the open so that also the people are aware. Mm-hmm. So I think as more people are going through that, people can reflect in both ways. Oh, look at all mm-hmm. this extra work I'm doing. Or, oh, look, oh, maybe I need to actually mentor a little bit more or be mm-hmm. involved in the community more so i think all those things are kind of all mixed up yeah together i went off tangent on your no, question but no, that was no, just no. kind of my reaction no, in the fine. moment <laughs> no that's really good i think it's really nice to hear though that there i mean yale is starting and i know a couple of other institutions are doing this too where they are asking questions about the shadow work about yeah. the work that you're doing that's not visible on paper yeah. but it's just as impactful and important and i think it's great that institutions are at least trying to implement some new ways to, you know, have people showcase the work that they're doing. That's mm-hmm. not just in the research field, but also in the field of DEI and mentorship. Mm-hmm. So I, that's really nice to hear. I like to hear that because it's like my husband and I talk about this all the time. He's just like, you always pick, because I was doing ISFS and there was a lot of work. Yep. And I was like, I'm not doing it anymore. I was like, I'm done. <laughs> and then I was like, I want to do this project. And he's like, you literally said you're not going to do it anymore. I was like, but I need to do this. Like, I have this calling in my heart. And he was just like, all right, what? I mean, I'm not going to stop you because you're going to do it anyways. I'm like, it's true. I am. Um, and I think, to be honest, it is a lot of work, but it makes you happy mm-hmm. in a very different way. Yeah. I mean, I love, I love research. I do. I love doing what I do. I love talking about what I do. Um, you know, obviously I went to a conference and I'm like, belly's out. And, you know, because I love what I do, mm-hmm. but I also love the work that I do that's outside of my research. That is talking to my students and figuring out what they need. And mm-hmm. the reason we started this project was because I was tired of going to committee meetings and feeling like the actionable items weren't there. Mm-hmm. I was tired of telling my mentees, oh, there's stuff, you can look it up, you know? And they're like, look up what? Like, who do I talk to? I'm like, oh, yeah. God, I don't know. <laughs> Let's find something. And so 
Yeah, I'm really glad to hear that there's a little bit more of an appreciation mm -hmm. for the work people are doing outside of like their labs or the bench or their classroom, but also like with people, with their communities and trying yeah. to make STEAM a little bit less exclusive. Mm -hmm. And so, um, so I wanted to talk about this a little bit with like the type of advocacy work that we all do. So Krishna, like I think for us as Asian Americans, we don't necessarily feel underrepresented right? Mm -hmm. Especially at the trainee level. And we might have very different experiences in other minorities in terms of bias and racism and exclusion. I think it's just a little different. Mm -hmm. Could just be me, but I think it's different. <laughs> um, so when I typically work in the DEI setting, I, I try to be very authentic about my experience, but not speak for others and mm -hmm. not, you know, try to represent people who I, I haven't lived their experiences. And so I know that you do a lot of intersectional work Right. So I wanted to know, like, what do you bring to the table and how do you help advocate for people who might not have your same lived experiences? Right. Yeah. No, I think that's a that's a good question. Um, so as you as you mentioned, I think in a sense, we're a little bit more privileged than other groups. Right. So I think what I like to bring to the table is the fact that I get listened to to some mm -hmm. degree, right? So, I mean, whatever. I'm a postdoc. It's not like I'm a, you know, whatever. Still a lowly postdoc. <laughs> You're not 70 yet. <laughs> I'm not a 70-year-old no, no. postdoc, thank God. Um, but but I, like, I like being able to step up and make space for people mm -hmm. that need space, right? Um, and I think, because it's, it's often difficult for some people to find that voice, I think. Yeah. So, if I can, I like to bring attention to whatever is missing, I think, from people that need some space to to talk so yeah yeah it's and it's it's and like you said you can't you can't live everybody else's experiences yep. so you don't know what they need so i think one thing that we often try to do both in the yale postdoc association or in the yale black postdoc association is try and find what people need and make space for them to to bring it to the table so mm -hmm. they can speak about it right and we do this through like different surveys and things like this just to find out what is it that we don't know that people are feeling mm -hmm. that we can advocate for and you know yeah. one of these things was um uh, the the kind of disparity that people um, feel when they're postdoctoral fellows at Yale versus postdoctoral mm -hmm. associates. There's a difference in benefits, right? If you get a if you get a fellowship, you actually have to you lose some benefits that you otherwise would get as an associate, mm -hmm. um, which kind of felt like you were being penalized for for winning a prestigious yeah. award or whatever, right? But if you were an associate who didn't already have this award, you wouldn't know that you're missing no. out on that you're getting these, you know, uh, getting docked basically. Uh, and so it was by kind of talking to our community um, and finding out what people were, what people need. Right. Uh, and it was bringing those uh, topics up to the table. And and I think the one kind of nice thing about COVID, if we can say that there was anything nice about it, <laughs> is that it kind of, in a sense, let us interface with administration a little bit more. Mm -hmm. So we had mm -hmm. some more whatever, mm -hmm. virtual FaceTime with people yeah. that we could talk to about these yeah. things. And I think that helped a lot. So, right. So we could bring these topics that maybe we weren't feeling directly, but at least yeah. other people in our community were. And I think making a space for them to have their voices heard, even if it's through me, right? Maybe, maybe they, they're not present at the meeting yeah. to speak, but at least I can kind of try and bring that concern up to people. Yeah. Yeah. I think like I, I try not to be the voice of people on, like that. I don't represent, mm -hmm. but then if I can say things that maybe they can't say, because I'm in a, I'm, I'm not a, I'm not really protected class of people i don't even know what the right word is but i think there are certain things i can get away with saying mm -hmm. that some of my peers can't like for like for lack of better phrases like the angry black woman mm -hmm. 
Like I can be just as angry mm -hmm. and say the same things and I won't be called the angry black woman. Mm -hmm. So sometimes I say those things, mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> but I'm like, can I say it though? Like I want to make sure I'm not like misrepresenting. So I think this is like a really important like and very nuanced thing. It's like, I think if you want to be an advocate and ally, you also have to know how to do it. So now I'm going to ask you both <laughs> and like how, okay. So how do you, you know, how do you serve as a good ally? How do you serve as a good advocate? Like, and what are, what are kind of the differences between those two things? Because I looked it up on the internets and <laughs> according to this thing called catalyst.org, it says allyship means doing the work to actively support people from marginalized groups. Um, usually with people you have relationships with. So kind of like making space, right? Um, whereas advocacy is, this is what the definition was, it's taking action in service of a cause. So like you're, you're trying to influence decision makers and decision making. So um, to me, these definitions are a bit vague, mm. kind of hard to understand. So can either of you clarify a little bit and maybe a couple of examples on the differences on being an ally versus an advocate? Yeah, I think I think those are good definitions. But like I said, a little bit opaque, maybe. Yeah, but I also did a little search. Oh, so on the internets. Yep. Okay. The allyship that I saw actually talked about solidarity, mm. which I thought was really helpful. Okay. Because that is just, I mean, that's empathy. Like I'm mm -hmm. here with you. I'm trying to understand, but there's no action that, around that. You can kind of sit in mm -hmm. solidarity okay. with someone mm -hmm. as opposed to what you talked about, like speaking on behalf of someone. Mm -hmm. So I've been in certain leadership meetings on campus and other organizations where there have been things that have been said that are a little bit off, but then me as the only black man in the room it's hard to necessarily go up against, for lack of a better mm. word, a leader and kind of call that person out. Yeah. Then there have been others in the room, for instance, a white female who also noticed that, could tell that others in the room couldn't make that and said, well, there are certain people in the room who may have had a hard time with what you just said. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then kind of e e extrapolated and articulate what exactly that did for us. So that to me is advocacy. Okay. Speaking up on behalf of the others Okay. creating that space and calling out the leader mm -hmm. in an appropriate way to say there are things that you missed and that okay. you misstepped on behalf of a certain group of people. Okay. As opposed to solidarity, meeting with those people afterwards and saying, oh, well, mm -hmm. it seemed like something was yeah. said that was really difficult in that meeting. I'm so sorry to hear that. That's good too, but that doesn't actually move yeah. the needle, bring any understanding to the person who said it. So it's, it's another step, like you said, of action, I think is really okay. important. Yeah. Okay. Doing the work. I yeah. Think. yeah. Yeah, that's I agree. Great. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so standing next to a person versus standing in front of that person, would that be the right, like, you know, kind of in taking the bullet? Up, and up, 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 standing up for that person. Standing up for or, that person, yeah. okay. Yeah, so I think, because I know people use, like, ally, like, all the time, I'm an ally. Great, okay, but if, <laughs> okay, I'm sorry, I'm going to be a little mean. Being an ally is great, but, like, being an advocate requires a little bit more risk, mm -hmm. maybe. Yeah. It, it puts you out there a little bit. It's a little bit scarier, but you're putting into action yeah. the feelings that you may have or the yeah. thoughts that you may have in support of your friend and support of your colleague yeah. and so that's like the slight difference yeah um i think I it's also add, using yeah, your privilege to some degree yeah, right? yeah, yeah. yeah i would say if especially if you are not in the same group as the person you're yes. advocating for then you kind of can use your privilege as whatever you are mm -hmm. to, to help that person advance whatever cause it is that yeah. Yeah. yeah there's privilege and even potentially sacrifice yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. Like that person, that woman speaking up on behalf, 
mm-hmm. also put themselves on the mm-hmm. line to have repercussions. Yeah. So I think it's both of them together. And then especially yeah. when we talk about just representation in general, mm-hmm. sometimes that sacrifice means being willing to give up your seat or give up your yeah. power. So, I mean, you know, let's say you have a, this is made up example, a, an executive table of 10 people at the table. If that room only allows 10 people, some, some people are going to have to leave if others yeah. are going to be brought in. Yeah. So the advocacy, in a sense, can be some type of sacrifice, sacrifice. that also has to happen, as opposed to just, yeah. oh, uh, you know, it's really that unfortunate sucks. you're not I'm here at the table. Yeah. I'm, I'm sorry to hear that, mm-hmm. and then yeah, carry I think, on like usual. I think that's probably maybe the hard part or the scary part of getting people to advocate. Um, or we'll also talk about sponsorship and partnership, which also is more action. Mm-hmm. Um, is is you might lose your spot. Yeah, and that's really hard, and yeah. we see it. In politics right now we're seeing this huge you know lash you know backlash from a lot of progress we had made in the last 10 years and um i think people are really afraid yeah. to maybe speak up and be an advocate and put yourself out there because you might lose some of your privileges yeah. and you you might be sacrificing something and yeah. i know that's really scary so for our listeners who might be like well i want to help but i also don't want to like give up my spot like, I get that. I empathize with you. I think about that all the time mm-hmm. when I say something that I know is going to ruffle some feathers. I'm like, oh, crap. Maybe I won't ha- get hired here later. <laughs> um, but, you know, the thing is, it's like in the long run, when you have more representation, when you have more diversity, and when you kind of give up a little bit so that others can come up with you, you know, you're creating a much better environment mm. in the long run. It's more sustainable. And I think. I know that sounds kind of like, well, it doesn't help me now, right? But, you know, think a little bit further ahead. Think about what'll help not just you, but the next generations after you. And sometimes a little bit of sacrifice is important for certain causes. Mm-hmm. And um, so that's what advocacy is. It's kind of willing a little bit to sacrifice for the greater good. Mm-hmm. And so now I want to talk about sponsorship and partnership. So we like had this conversation when we talked about networking, about mentors and the differences between a mentor and a sponsor. And again, I think it's more about the degree of, you know, how much the person's going to speak up for you or put their neck out there for you. Right. So again, according to the internet, um, <laughs> a partnership is more like an agreement between two or more people in which they pull their resources together for a cause Whereas sponsorship is when one person, usually someone with more power or influence, helps another person, usually one with less power and influence, to like move up the ranks or find a seat at the table. So does that sound about right? Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. So like what are your thoughts on sponsorship and partnership? How do you think, you know, our listeners can one, maybe find a sponsor, but also be a sponsor or be a partner? Like what are some, you know, advice or know how? Like what can people do? to either be one or find one. Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think if we're defining partnership the way you did, um, I think there's always more solidarity in numbers, right? I mean, I think that's kind of why I appreciate the postdoctoral association groups that I'm a part of. We're all postdocs. We yeah. all have the same lack of benefits or whatever <laughs> that we're, that we're, that we're, yeah. we're all for, poor right? together. Right? And that's, and that's, and that's exactly it. Right. So if we don't want to all be poor together, we need to try and put our skills together, whether it's whatever, you know, you know, if someone is a good, uh, you know, has experience with advocacy or if someone is a good writer or someone, you know, can whatever. 
get people to, mm-hmm. you know, to commit to a thing or they're good organizers. I think that's when you pull all these resources together and you try and fight for the same cause. Right. Um, and I think, I think that's, it's not easy to find people in the same position because you don't always know. I mean, in some cases you can, right. If you have the title of a postdoc, you know that you're all in the same boat, but, um, yeah, it can be, it can be difficult. I think actually to find people that are in the same boat, depending on what, what the topic is. And I think, I don't know. I think in that sense, I find networking kind of helpful because mm-hmm. the more people you meet, I think the more people you realize are kind of going through some of the same stuff that mm-hmm. you're going through. Um, and I don't think I, I quite, uh, realized the benefit of networking in that sense until I, until I think I got to grad school. And then I was like, Oh, you know, I, it is good to meet other people. Not just because I want a job. I mean, that's fine too, but I think you get to really meet people who are going through a lot of the same things you are. And then you can learn from them what, you know, how it is that they mm-hmm. get past whatever issues that they've had. Or mm-hmm. Yeah. No, yeah, that's great. And then like the sponsor example too, I think it's just, as you mentioned, like putting people up for things. Mm-hmm. Like if there is, you know, invited speakers, I mean, it's been good to see a lot of conversations shift where it's not just faculty they are getting invited to give talks, but postdocs and trainees mm-hmm. and saying, oh, I know this person over here who could give that talk. Absolutely. And actually bringing up people's names, bringing people to the table. Yeah. I mean, I feel like at the faculty level, that's much easier to do from a concrete standpoint. Mm-hmm. Like if I get asked to give a talk and I can't go, mm-hmm. it's uh, the first thing I should think of is who can I sponsor to go and speak mm-hmm. in my place? Yeah. They could then have that exposure or have those types of things. Yeah. So I think we have to think a little bit more creatively about opportunities to do that but there's so many ways that can happen like on a peer-to-peer basis or near-peer basis like postdocs with grad students i mean Mm -hmm. there have even been post uh graduate symposiums that have been organized Mm -hmm. the last few years and Mm -hmm. people that can be suggested for leadership for that or appointing undergrads to give talks in labs or you know if there's job opportunities that come out i feel there's so many ways we actually just take the time to think about it Mm -hmm. yeah i think this is something that i i think you know we'll we'll definitely have a little bit more resources online about this, but you know, finding, so there's two things, right? Finding a sponsor can be a little bit challenging and it does start with meeting a lot of people. Mm -hmm. I know networking is something we talked about before and some people don't have the personality to just go out there and meet people. It seems really scary and intimidating and it doesn't have to be like large groups of people. You can use LinkedIn now. Mm -hmm. There's so many different social platforms that Mm -hmm. you can reach out to people. Twitter's a really big one that during the pandemic, like so many scientists were on Twitter. They're all like reaching out with each other. You know, conferences are a good place Mm -hmm. um, to just like reach out to someone be like, Hey, like I'd like to get to know you and developing a relationship. And you know, sponsorship happens when someone knows you. Right. So you have to also invest in the time to develop that relationship. And then when you are in a position of power um, and you can help sponsor someone else, Mm -hmm. it is, you know, being like, hey, I know this person yeah. and I want to plug this person in mm-hmm. and you have to say it out loud. You can't just think it. And yeah. so, again, it's a little bit of risk. It takes a little bit of, you know, uh, putting your neck out there a little bit. But I think sponsorship, partnership and advocacy are are like you'd have to take action. And sometimes when you take action, there's cost. And so um, and this is something I think Dr. Yuan, uh, who we interviewed before for a crisis um Sorry, conflict management mm-hmm. and Dr. Eunice Yuan. Um, I don't know if you know her. She's uh, the, she's she's also in the Department of Psychology. Okay. Um, and she was talking about you know anytime you do any kind of confrontation or you have a difficult conversation, there's like three things that can happen. Mm-hmm. Either nothing can change, it can get better, or it can get worse. So you have to kind of take that into consideration before you go out there and have those kinds of conversations. And so. 
as we talk about advocacy and as we talk about partnership and sponsorship, know that every time you do speak out for a person, uh, it could end up in three different ways. And sometimes it might not be in your favor. And unfortunately, you know, a lot of good things do come at a cost. And so uh, I'm not trying to say this to scare people or make you not want to do anything, but understand that some of the greatest things takes, takes risk and cost. Like a lot of really good stuff comes with a cost. Yeah. And so I hope you guys feel encouraged, you know, and empowered because you're not alone. There's a team of us now. There's like to- so many more people involved in DEI and so many more people who want to make STEAM a more inclusive and representative space. And so there are people out there who want to build this network with you so that when you do advocate and when you do, you know, partner, when you do sponsor, you're not just alone. There's multiple people out there who's speaking the same thing as you. So as we start to wrap up, I wanted to ask yourself, you know, if um, now this is about self-advocacy. So do you have any advice for people who are finding themselves at the table, but they're like the only person in their community? Like, how do you make them feel like, you know what? I know imposter syndrome comes up all the time in almost every podcast at this point, but it's like, you know, how, how do you feel? What, how can you encourage that person who found their way, fought their way? Yeah. Up to that table. Now they're sitting there like, ah, crap. <laughs> I'm here now. Uh, how do I speak? How do I take up space? Um, do you guys have any advice? Yeah. I mean, my first thought is just to make sure that like, if you're in that place, you actually have a support system. Mm. So two, two things, like a support system outside of the room mm-hmm. so that people can encourage you when you go into the room, mm-hmm. when you come out. But also if there's ways to actually get that support within the room itself okay so depending on how you got into that situation if there are like sponsors and advocates in that room who you can have that you hopefully have a relationship with outside of that setting too okay so you can kind of navigate and talk through that i mean that's not always easy and not always the case if it is the case the other thing i would say is see if there's a way to actually negotiate to move things forward so that you're not the only anymore Mm -hmm. because it's so important for there to be more than one Absolutely. so that yeah. that person doesn't feel like they're carrying the whole weight. Because even if the people in the room don't feel like you're carrying the whole weight, they're still going to interpret it that way. Cause they, they just will only hear, they may only hear one perspective that's outside yeah. of not say that they all think the same way, but that might be, you might be the most unique perspective. And so it's helpful to have mm-hmm. others with you and kind of bring that in a team way. So I know, I know it sounds, maybe it's not concrete enough, but I feel like there just, there has to be a lot of support both inside and outside because yeah. it's just so difficult to navigate if you feel like you're so, and again, that doesn't have to be your institution. You can get that mm-hmm. from mentors outside your institution. Mm-hmm. Sometimes that's actually better yeah. because someone has a different perspective, perspective on mm-hmm. it and they also aren't as emotionally tied to it. So they can say things to you that others in your circle might not be willing to say because they're worried about their own repercussions mm-hmm. and things like that. So, okay. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> I think, um, one thing I try to always keep in mind when I, if I find myself in that position is, well, you work to get there, right? I mean, someone has thought that you're good enough to be at the mm. table. Mm-hmm. So if someone else thinks that you're good enough to be at the table, then you're clearly good enough to be at the table. Mm. And, and it's, um, I don't know, it's, it's difficult sometimes to speak on behalf of uh, a whole group, but I think um, it's, also, it's also worthwhile to remember that this is an opportunity that you kind of can't afford to waste mm. because other people aren't getting that chance, right? I mean, there yeah. might be other people in your group who are cl- clearly who are not there, right? So I think you just have to make use of those opportunities, you know, right place, right time, I think is a real thing. And, mm-hmm. and you, just, you can't 
squander it. And I think sometimes that just means you just muster your courage and you yeah. say what needs to be said. Yeah. I mean, what's I feel like at the end of the day, it's like to me, I'm like, what's the worst they can do? You're no longer at the table, which is no worse than where you started at, right? <laughs> yeah. You were not there. Yeah. Now you're there and now yeah. you're not there again. Yeah, right. yeah. So it's still not happening if you're not there. So yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Favor, we I asked Favor and Eileen what was their advice. And you know, Eileen talked about imposter syndrome mm-hmm. and Favor said, you know, she has like this this motto or like it's just a phrase that she her family really instilled in her, which is like, be fearless. Mm. She's like, fear is like so powerful and mm. it can like cripple you. But mm. if you're fearless, what can't you do? Right. Yeah. And, you know, it was such a, I was like chills. I'm like, oh my God. And I really, I thought about that a lot as I was putting together, um, you know, today's episode about like, how do you tell someone who barely made it or like scrap, like scrapped and fought to get there? Like you're there now. Enjoy. It's like, no, you don't just get over that. You're like, crap, Mm -hmm. I made it. But now what? What's next? And it's like, well, first congratulate yourself you got there you know be proud be excited like you're first of all you're there whatever the reason you're there you're there so Mm -hmm. you know celebrate Mm -hmm. celebrate yourself celebrate yourself people don't do that enough celebrate yourself you're awesome and then take that awesomeness and joy and be like okay now i'm here what do i want to do yeah like ask yourself what you want to do not just for everyone around you but for yourself too right like um and I, I kind of say this a lot and sometimes I feel like it's, I'm trying to tell you to be selfish. I kind of am. <laughs> I think it's important to be a little bit selfish. I think it's important to understand that you can't give from an empty well. Mm-hmm. So you have to ask yourself when you're at the table, like, what is it that I need? And I'm sure there are others who will need the same things. Like, for example, you know, Krishna worked so hard um, trying to get that childcare subsidy for postdocs. <laughs> um, it, you know, like I didn't even know that that was something we could do. Mm. You know, he asked me to come to this meeting. I'm like, yeah, I would love to have more money for childcare, please. Yeah. Any dollar counts. And it's just, you know, it, it, it's like such a, it's such a common sense thing. Like childcare, you know, a lot of us have young children. We need childcare, but then, you know, none of us knew to ask mm. for it. Mm-hmm. Right. And it, I mean, you have children, so that's why you can think about that. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I'm not saying you did it selfishly, but it benefits you and it benefits others who are in similar situations as you. So I think, you know, my advice to our listeners is that, you know, first think of yourself because you made it (laughs) and now you can really advocate for yourself and and also think for others, you know, who are probably going through the same thing Mm -hmm. as you. And then, you know, then talk to your community, you know, find your network, find your peers, find your friends ask them what they need because now you have the speakerphone and you have this platform and you can do it. And so um, the last thing I want to do is ask the two of you guys, what are your future plans? Because you've already accomplished so much. I'm sure it's going to be like amazing things, but so what's next for you guys? That is a hard question. (laughs) (laughs) One, because I've I've gotten my hand in so many things. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's, that's my own doing, as my wife reminds me of. When I say there's too much to do. Um, so I think part of it is just, what's the best way to put it? Just kind of, um, one, there are just lots of teams in place mm-hmm. on all three components, but just kind of seeing that impact spread in mm-hmm. some way. So even if you were talking just now, just thinking about the mental health advocacy mm-hmm. of things, um, like you were saying, people got to make sure that they invest yeah. in themselves too, because there's been too many situations where I've seen people going a thousand miles an hour. Mm-hmm running on empty 
and exacerbating mental health challenges or mm -hmm. mental illness. So like, that's just a huge, like if you get to that point, it's good to address it, but then you're not going to be as effective in what you're doing. Mm -hmm. um, so to get back to your question, I think, I think I'm still thinking about what that looks like in the big picture, like okay. how the research can be integrated with the DEI anti-racism can be integrated with the public engagement types of stuff. I actually have a couple potential book projects that I'm thinking through. Nice. So I think it, it feels like none of them will exist in and of itself, yeah. but at some shape or form, they're going to kind of continue to grow. I guess I'd like to see just all of them be integrated. So mm -hmm. the academic stuff coming into the community more so in mm -hmm. the community impacting the, um, the research and the DEI. So I don't have a good answer for you. <laughs> too many things floating around. But That's okay. Something, something around all three of those being integrated. That sounds really, well, I look forward to finding out what that is with you. <laughs> I'll keep my eye I'll out. I'll be like, what is happening over there? Yeah. He's doing all this stuff. Oh, this book came out. And when the book comes out, we'll plug it. Yeah, that works for me. That works for me. <laughs> yep. I oh. get a free copy, right? Yeah, yeah of course. All of, of us get free, free copies. Definitely. <laughs> and how about you, Krishna? Uh, I feel like that was very grandiose. And I, I'm not sure I can live up to that. But um, yeah, I mean, short term, at least for now, um, I would like to start my own lab. But I'd like to- He's on the job market institutions, <laughs> Dr. Krishna Madumbi. I am on the job market. Hire me. <laughs> um, but uh, no, I would, I would like to take, I think what I've been doing here at Yale to wherever it is that I end up. Um, and, and I think I'd like to advocate for, I would still like to keep advocating for postdocs and grad students. Cause I think it's important. Um, of course I feel, uh, affinity to postdocs at the moment because I am one, but it, it is a, it can be a very lonely time mm -hmm. in your training, uh, because there's no real cohort to speak of, right? Yeah. You're kind yeah. of on your own. I hear it gets only worse, which I, I maybe me can attest to. Uh, when you become faculty, but um, I, I would like to keep advocating for mm. postdocs to have things like childcare, to have things like equitable benefits, um, you know, because I think the only way we're going to keep people in academia is to actually support them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we just see a lot of attrition, right? And and a lot of it, unfortunately, comes down to money, mm -hmm. which I think, um, I don't know, maybe from the ivory tower, we just look at that as a, you know, and not a necessity, but it clearly is, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, no, now that you mentioned the money thing, I think, you know, as I talked about earlier, you know, academia historically wasn't for the poor. It wasn't for people who didn't have money. It was yeah. for people who kind of had a support system mm -hmm. with money. So yeah. you go to academia and you're okay with being a little poor for a while because you have a support network right. with monies. But if you're, you, you know, like you don't have that and now you have a family or maybe you're taking care of like elderly parents or sick parents or really even if it's just you like it can be financially burdensome mm -hmm. so it's, it's nice to hear that that's what you want to do i'm mm -hmm. very excited about the work that you do thank you very much <laughs> i appreciated the child care subsidy very very much <laughs> we'll make sure you get it oh yeah i know i did i already got it i'm like exactly. immediately money yes yep. check um but i'm so glad that we were able to have this um chat and i'm so like happy i finally got to meet you yes. in person, yeah. me and Christian, I've seen you enough times. <laughs> we get to sit down on the couch. I know that's true. Yeah. That's right. Um, but yeah, I'm so glad that we were able to do this. So, and I'm so excited to see what the future holds for the both of you. And for our listeners, for more resources in our directory of Steaminists, please visit our website and see you all next week. Steam the Podcast is brought to you by RSS.com. We're produced by Brian Kelly and Christina Cho with help from T. Badri, Naomi Phillip, Emily Chu, and Sandhya Pabakaran. Our engineer is Brian Kelly at Echo Station Studio, and original music is by David James Pugo. 
If you like Steam the Podcast, please share it with your friends. Let them know that they can subscribe to Steam the Podcast on RSS.com community, the iHeartRadio app, Spotify, Amazon Music, Samsung Podcast, Podcast Index, and Listen Notes. For resources and our directory of Steaminists, check out our website at projectsteamed.org. Thanks for listening and see you all next week. Thank you.